What I'm going to do this morning is a little different. Normally we approach a portion or text of scripture and work our way through. This morning I'm going to preach more of a biblical theme concerning our redemption and the centrality of that theme being that what we lost in Adam we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I do want to direct your attention to a couple of scriptures out of Romans chapter 5 and then we're going to go back and spend some time in Genesis chapter 3. And I hope to say this several times so that it sticks in all of our minds And we need this reminder. And I pray that by the grace of God, some of you may hear it with a spiritual ear for the first time. If you sit here this morning as those who are in turmoil about the state of your soul, have no assurance, then I trust that the Lord would use the truth of his word that we're going to look at this morning for your salvation and for all of our encouragement. Everything that we lost in Adam, and we're going to detail what those things are out of the third chapter of Genesis. Everything that we lost in Adam, God provided for us in Christ, and then even some on top of that. And so I want you to look with me at a couple of verses out of Romans chapter 5. And I want to read these verses and then use the third chapter of Genesis to unpack them. I would encourage you to spend some time in the entirety of the fifth chapter of Romans. But just reading select verses here, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is the only way that man is justified in the sight of holy God is by faith. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Skip down to verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 12, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would show us both the reality of having fallen in Adam and also the blessed reality of by faith having been raised to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it would please you to do this in Christ's name. Amen. You can't read the scriptures, particularly this section of the book of Romans, 
without realizing that you have one of two men as your head. One of two men represent you before God. One of two men define who you are. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no third man. There is no third option. There is no intermediary state between being either in Adam or in Christ. The scripture says, in Adam all die. In Christ, many are made righteous. And I'm particularly looking at this 19th verse of Romans 5, which we read, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners also, By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now, this is a verse that we have to apply the rest of the scriptures to. The rest of the scriptures teach us and give some real specificity to these words. One man's disobedience all died. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. One man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Christ is leading many sons to glory. He has accomplished salvation for his own people. And so I want us to look this morning at what was lost and what has been found in Christ. What God has discovered for us in his, in his own son. One more verse out of Romans, the 8th chapter, before we go to Genesis 3. And that is the purpose of our salvation. If someone were to ask you, for what reason did God save you? I realize there are many biblical ways to answer that question. But somewhere in your formation of an answer to the question of why did God save you, we have to work in the truth of Romans 8, 29 to conform me to the image of his own son. For my benefit, yes, so that I don't spend an eternity of of experiencing the full wrath of God upon me. That's also a biblical way to answer that question. But the way I want to answer it this morning and look at this morning is God saved me and he saved those of you who are in Christ to conform you to the image of his own son. To make you like Christ. That's the process of sanctification. Growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ further conforms us to Christ himself. If you'll go now to Genesis chapter 3 and again we're not working through a specific section of verses, I will reference several from the third of Genesis and then also a couple from the first and second chapters. The first thing that I want to do this morning is look at Adam in his original creation. Adam as being the representative head of all mankind before he fell. The 27th verse of Genesis chapter 1 tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
So what this verse tells us when we look at it in the totality of Scripture is that God created Adam originally in a state of blessedness. At least that's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. I realize there's some rationality there that we have, have a reasoning soul. But if we boil it down, God created Adam in a state of blessedness. He gave him physical life. The seventh verse of the second chapter tells us, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's the physical creation of Adam. Forming him out of dust, breathing into his nostrils life, and Adam became a living being. Being. We know then that the 15th verse of that second chapter tells us that the Lord employed Adam in tending the garden. Some would tell you, and we might like to believe at times, that work is a result of the fall. Not so. Adam was to tend the garden prior to his fall. Now, the sweat that drops now because of work is a product of the curse. So we see Adam in his original creation physically as being formed out of the dust of the ground and employed by God in the garden to keep and tend it. But then what about the spiritual side of Adam? How was he created originally before his fall? What did he lose and? As importantly, what did we lose in Adam's fall? We speak of those who are outside of Christ as being lost. We do that because in the fall, mankind lost everything that he was originally created with. So when we look at several verses out of these beginning chapters of God's creation, especially considering Adam, what we see is that God made Adam and created him with what we refer to as an original righteousness. This is more than innocence. He created him with an original righteousness. It's not just that Adam hadn't yet sinned, And was thereby innocent. It's more than that. He was righteous as being created in the image of God. I realize there's just a little difference of meaning there. But it's important that we state it that way. But he also had communion and fellowship with God. Unhindered. Adam was created perfect. He is part of that creation upon which the Lord pronounced that it is all very good. In very many ways, Adam here is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his perfections. But there is one vast and great difference. The vast and great difference is that Adam was created mutable. What does that mean? He was subject to change. Created perfect. 
having an original righteousness created in the image of God, having communion and fellowship with God, having the knowledge of God, enjoying the other blessed creation of God, but unlike Christ who is immutable, we sing that old hymn very often, immutable, invisible, God only wise, Christ completely immutable, which means he is unable to change. He will and has forever been completely and totally righteous, holy. All of his attributes carried out to their fullest degree. He has always been and will always be, never losing even a portion of any of those. Adam, on the other hand, though he possessed many of these things in his original creation, was subject to change. And change he did. God gave Adam one command. We find that command in the second chapter, the 16th verse. After the Lord God took this perfect creation of his and placed him in the garden to tend and keep it, the Lord God commanded him. And he said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was a covenant of sorts between God and his creation, Adam. Some refer to this as the covenant of works. But notice, this is not a covenant. Toward salvation. There has never been a covenant between God and man whereby a man could merit his salvation through works. This was a covenant, if you will, of maintenance. In other words, Adam keeping what he already had. And you can think of it this way, this conversation between the Lord and Adam, and I'm, I don't want to be heretical here, but just it helps to think of it this way. If, Adam, if the Lord said to Adam, these are the things that you possess. You have original righteousness. You've been created in my image. You have life eternal. Adam would have never died if he had continued in that original state. Death is a physical death and a spiritual death is the product of sin. And so he had life eternal, both physically and spiritually. He had unhindered communion and fellowship, even friendship with God. He had tremendous knowledge. And it's as if God is saying to him here, Adam, you can keep it all. Just don't transgress this one commandment. It's important that we understand it in that way so that we fully appreciate the new covenant of grace that God makes with Adam and with all of mankind as we fast forward just into the third chapter of Genesis. Adam's blessedness depended on what he would do. It's important that we affirm that. Adam's continuation in this blessed state was conditioned upon what he would or would not do. We know as we look through the third chapter of Genesis that the adversary 
of all truth. The serpent, the deceiver, is introduced for the first time. The scripture tells us that he was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he comes to Eve. And he deceives Eve. Eve falls prey to his deception. She takes of the fruit of the tree and eats it. Adam follows suit. And then what happens? He fell. What did he fall from? He fell from his original righteousness. He fell from his eternal life, physical and spiritual. He fell from the close communion that he had with God. He fell from his friendship with the Lord. Now he has lost it all. He fell from his high position into the depths of sin. Specifically, in the 19th verse of chapter 3, we find that he lost his life. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In the 11th verse of chapter 3, we see where he loses his righteousness. The Lord said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Before the fall, Adam felt no need to cover himself. Adam felt no need to cover the shame of his nakedness because there was no shame. But he also lost his communion with God in the third chapter. And in the eighth verse, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That was completely new for this relationship of God's creation in Adam and himself. Before there was unhindered fellowship and friendship and communion. Now after the fall, Adam is hiding from the Lord. And we know that this fall resulted in a series of curses beginning with the serpent, extending to the woman Eve, and then finally upon Adam himself. I want you to look with me at the curse that the Lord pronounces upon the serpent. It's in the third chapter, beginning in the 14th verse. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you were cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall shall bruise his heel. Isn't it interesting that this first mentioning of the gospel, this first detailing and outlining of the covenant of grace is embedded in the curse given to the serpent. 
That's interesting because part of the curse of the serpent is the knowledge, the full knowledge, because of what you've done. There is one who will descend from this woman that you deceived that is going to come and bruise. The word here obviously is crush. He is going to come and crush your head. Then to the woman, the Lord says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, this is new in the relationship of man and wife. But yet the real thing that we're after here this morning is looking at what he says to Adam. To Adam in verse 17, he says, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What we see here is Adam being held fully responsible by the Lord for his actions. Eve is not the responsible party. Adam is the federal head of all mankind here. And even in the midst of this, the Lord is showing him And no doubt by Adam's next action, he heard the curse pronounced upon the serpent. Talked about this very briefly on Wednesday night because I wasn't even here very long on Wednesday night. But if you look at Cain, fast forward into the fourth chapter, Cain also has a curse upon him for his actions. He murdered his brother Abel. His brother's blood cries out. The Lord chastises, punishes, or curses Cain. Do you remember what Cain says? He has a full realization of the punishment of God, and he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Wouldn't that seem to fit better with Adam than Cain? I think Adam realized everything he had just lost, not just spiritually, but it had worked its way out into his physical existence as well. He knew now that he was naked. He knew that he needed to be covered. By this point, God had covered him with the skin of an animal, having shed blood to cover him. He knew that his unbroken communion and fellowship with God would be no more. He knew that he had been placed outside of The garden, and that the garden was now guarded so that he could not go back in. In a very real sense, Adam had lost everything. Wouldn't it fit for Adam to say what Cain said? My punishment is greater than I can bear. But that's not what he says at all, is it? The only thing that we can attribute it to is that he heard, not just physically, but that he heard what the Lord had said to the serpent, speaking about the one who would come and bruise 
the head or crushed the head of the serpent. And even at this point, Adam is operating in belief and faith in what the Lord had said. How do we know that? Because after the curse in verse 20, Adam does no complaining. He doesn't say anything about his punishment being so great that he can't bear it. We're just simply told that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What that points to is that Adam was believing and looking forward to this one to come from his union with Eve as being the mother of all living. We're called to do the same, to believe in this one, not who would come, but who has come, who has placed his foot upon the head of the serpent. Adam lost everything. We thereby lost everything. That's a basic tenet of a gospel presentation. Is to show mankind, regardless of your actions, regardless of what you have ever done or not done, whether it's a sin that you commit or a sin of omission, something that you have left undone, it doesn't matter what you have actually physically done with your hands because you are a descendant of Adam. He is your federal head, your representative before God, and you fell in him. Mankind fell in him. And then, oh, by the way, you have actually committed sins. The moral law of God stands opposed to you. And if you were to detail each one of them, you would find that, yes, indeed, you have actually broken them all. This is what Adam lost. This is what mankind lost. And if you were sitting here outside of Christ this morning, this is what you lost. And still are in need of. I want you to notice another great stark difference. In what the Lord says in verse 15. Remember up until this point. Adam's continuing or not in the state of blessedness. Was dependent upon what he would do. Would he obey God? Would he not? Obviously he did not and was plunged into sinfulness. But notice what the Lord says in verse 15. From this point forward, Adam, and all of your posterity, your being in the state of blessedness or not does not depend upon what you will do. It depends upon what I will do for you. Verse 15 clearly says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is something that the Lord is doing. And this is what Adam was believing in verse 20 by not complaining that his punishment was too great. His only hope, our only hope, is what our creating God would do for us. What he has done. For us. And so I want you to see again what did Adam lose? He lost his original righteousness, he lost his life, both 
the prospect of eternal physical life and spiritual. He lost his unhindered communion and fellowship with the Lord. In a very real sense, he lost the knowledge of God to the extent that he had it. He was driven outside of the garden, the way now being guarded. But more importantly, if you don't hear anything, I want you to notice this. I'm not wanting to dwell any longer upon the things Adam lost. I want you to see what we find when we come to faith in Christ. All of these things are restored. And I want you even to understand the way I'm using the word restoration. Salvation is not to be considered as just the knocking of the dust off, being cleaned up. The word regeneration is probably better used here. There is newness. It's not just that Adam has been given a bath. Adam has been recreated. We are recreated in Christ when we come to faith in Him. That's what the Scriptures hold out to us as promises. You think of just the first that Adam lost. Immediately, he lost his righteous standing before God. And every person ever born since has had no righteous standing before God. We've all sinned, all fallen short, all gone astray, all condemned, all at enmity with God. God being opposed to us, being objects of His wrath, being objects of just punishment. And God completely righteous in imposing all of that upon us. The good news is that God has provided a way for righteousness to be given. You see, that's what the requirement of God is from beginning to end for mankind, to be righteous before Him. Adam lost his, and we all lost it in Adam. But to be righteous before Him is His requirement. That is the great need of mankind. Man's greatest need is not food, it is not water, it is not shelter. All of those obviously are necessary for his physical well-being and life. But the greatest need of mankind is to be right in the sight of God. That's why when we read that parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, the scripture says, fared sumptuously. He had everything that he could have ever have wanted. The poor man, the beggar, Lazarus, on the other hand, had nothing but a body full of sores, and his only hope was to be laid at the gate of the rich man and to eat the crumbs that fell from his table. But after they both died, what happened? The exact opposite. The rich man was taken into Hades. The poor man to Abraham's bosom. A great gulf being fixed. 
The righteousness of God is only restored unto us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's your greatest need. It's not up to you to acquire it. You can't work for it. You can't do a thousand good deeds and gain it. The miracle of grace and even the scandal of grace is that God has done everything and requires nothing of your hand but belief and trust in the Christ that he has supplied. When a person sees all of these truths come off the page of Scripture and the Spirit of God makes application of these things to your heart, to your mind, to your life, and you see this way of righteousness and you run and you cling to Christ by faith, that righteousness which Adam lost is imputed to you. Please understand that word of imputation. God gives it to you in such a way that He looks upon what was Christ's as being in your possession. The blessing of it is, is that this righteousness of Christ, once imputed, is never lost. You can't lose it. You are in no peril of being an Adam or being like Adam in the garden and losing this righteousness given to you of Christ. The great truth of this is that God is going to keep you. If you are in Christ and in Christ in truth, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, if you don't merely profess but possess, there's any number of ways we could say it, but if your salvation is wholly bound up in Christ, then this righteousness is given you and will never, ever be lost again. And just to answer the question that I hope some of you have is how do I, how do I acquire this righteousness? Just believe. Come believing in Christ. Turning to God from your idols, as Paul would say it. Believing upon Him. But it's more than just righteousness that is restored when we are being conformed to the image of His Son. If we again look at everything that Adam lost, certainly he lost his righteousness, but he also lost his life. He also was told in time, you were taken from dust and you're going to return to that dust. So death is a result of sin. And obviously we still bear that. Even post-salvation, we're not told that we will not experience a physical death. It is still called in the Scriptures, the last enemy. But it is the way of entrance into the, the glorious state where we will finally be ushered into when Christ comes to consummate all things at the end. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we are given this promise of eternal life. Eternal life. We are never going to experience the second death. Yes, our bodies will die and return to dust, but there is the hope of being raised to new life. 
resurrection. Where we will have a glorified body. Aren't you looking forward to that? A glorified body forever. That cannot be lost. Life will have fully been restored unto the creation of God. So we have righteousness, we have life. What about fellowship and communion? That, that is another aspect of what Adam lost. But how sweet the fellowship and communion of believers is with God through Christ. Hopefully what you're seeing is that everything that Adam lost is restored in Christ. Or if you like to maintain the lost and found vocabulary, everything that we lost in Adam we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find nothing of eternal value in your own works or commending yourself to God. It may earn you some recognition in the eyes of men. But that's as far as it will go. On the day when Christ calls everyone to account, the only thing that will stand is His own righteousness. There's nothing else. I want you to look with me in conclusion at another place in Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's the third chapter, a chapter that most likely we all know well. And I want you to go down to the 21st verse of Romans 3. And there the scripture says, but now. But now. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. This is the righteousness that was witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. This is the righteousness you need. And it's the righteousness made available to you if you come in faith. There is a great seeming antagonism in the Scriptures between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Absolutely, the Lord is sovereign. Salvation is of the Lord. But there is great responsibility laid upon each individual to come to Christ. Have you? Are you trying to establish your own righteousness? You're going to fail miserably in that endeavor.
what keeps you from coming. And however you answer that question, just do inventory in your own heart and mind right now. Whatever the answer to that question is, what keeps you from coming in the end, is it going to be worth it? If it's pride in the end, is it going to be worth not having come to Christ in this day of salvation? What someone else might think, what someone else might do, what may now be expected of me. From talking with a lot of young people, I've come to see through the years that that's a great hindrance to coming to Christ because there's new expectations. Let me just encourage you. What the Lord expects of you in any, any season of your walk with Christ, what He expects of you, He's going to give you grace to do. The expectation the Scripture places upon a new believer is to submit to believer's baptism. Many people will say, frightened of that. It's a public profession. It's a a symbol of an inward spiritual reality according to Paul in the book of Romans. Let me just put your mind at ease. When you come to faith in Christ, whatever it is that you fear, He's going to quell that fear and give you a desire so strong that you can't do anything but that thing. I can speak as one bearing witness and testimony to that. And so can you. So come to faith. I don't care what your reason for not coming to faith is. It's not a good one. Everything Adam lost and everything you lost in him can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for sinners in Christ. Lord, impress upon us all the magnitude of what was lost in Adam and then replace it with the full understanding of what is to be found in Christ. In him we find everything. We find life eternal. We find righteousness. We find hope. We find fellowship and communion with you. We find resurrection unto life. We find glorious, eternal communion with our creating God. These things cannot be found anywhere else. So, Father, I pray you would do that work that work which is yours alone, drawing men, women, children, boys, girls into yourself, showing them their need and then your great provision. We're thankful for these truths, thankful for hope, thankful for the good news that we can share with each other. And Father, we declare again, and we'll continue to do so, that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
for it is the very power of God unto salvation. May it be so again this day in this place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.